You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. All right. Thank you, other large beard. I'll take it from here. (laughs) Sitting on the front row while he was doing that was really like, we are such a bearded church. Amen. (laughs) Praise the Lord. All right. Uh, We're going to continue in our series in Genesis this morning, so if you would go to Genesis chapter 18 with me, and um, we are going to uh, read, I'll read out loud, and uh, we're going to get through the first, uh, Lord willing, through the first 15 verses of this chapter. So as we normally do, I'll read these verses out loud if you would follow along, and then uh, We'll pray together and ask the Lord to do what he can do. Genesis chapter 18, starting in the first verse. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're with us. If nothing else was true this morning, it would be enough for us to know that you're with us. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us in your love and in your grace for us, that you've come here to fellowship with us and minister to us, to teach us, to conform us to the likeness of Christ, that we would think like him, live like him, have our hearts and our character shaped like his. And that's what we want this morning, Lord. As we come to your word, we want to abandon any other kind of goal that we would have here 
in this time. Our goal, Lord, is that you would be exalted so that we could all, all of us in this room, with the eyes of our hearts opened by you, see you and worship you and submit our lives to you. Most of all, Lord, we know that your kingdom is a kingdom built on faith, on belief. So we ask that you would create that in us this morning. Some of us, maybe for the first time, that we would turn to you and trust you, believe in you, and be saved. We ask you for that. For those of us who have believed, who have trusted you, we ask, Lord, that you would deepen our faith, deepen our belief, our trust in you so that you would receive more glory from our lives. We understand that these things can only be accomplished through the power of your spirit, not through any person or any gift, but only by you. So we ask you, please do it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, um, again, to kind of catch you up, as we, we have to do working chronologically through uh, this book, we have been waiting along with, you know, for us it's just been a few months, but for Abraham and Sarah it's been over 20 years now. They've been waiting for a promise that God made to them to be fulfilled, and it was a promise that they would have a son, and that through the birth of this son, uh, which they had none, and they were very old, and his wife Sarah is, has been barren uh, up to this point, and at this point remains that they would have a son, and through this son, a line, a lineage would be started that would become a great nation in the world, and that this nation would be the people of God, that God would be devoted to these people, and that these people would be devoted to God. We know that this promise is uh, ultimately fulfilled in who Christ is and the kingdom that Christ is building, and these are the beginnings of those promises coming to pass. So here we are now, Abraham, Sarah, waiting so long, years and years, even decades now, they've been waiting for the Lord to fulfill this promise, and he's shown up now uh, multiple times in order to reiterate his promise and his devotion to his word. Even when their faith wavered, he was always graciously drawing near to them and reminding them of his promise, even when they completely botched it and failed to believe and stay the course God never strayed from the course. So now, in chapter 18, we have another appearance of the Lord. There have been times where the Lord spoke to Abraham, and now this is the second time that the Lord is actually visibly appearing to him. And we get much more detail about the appearance that Abraham actually saw here in this text. So let me just Start reading again and working back through the text with you. Verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. I was just in the Middle East a few weeks ago, and the heat of the day is not a joke. It is discouraging, the kind of heat that you experience there. So he's sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, 
He lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, I want you to notice that we were told by Moses, who wrote these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we were told that the Lord appeared to him, but at this point in the text, you're not told that these, or Abraham is not told that these three men are the Lord, or that one of them is the Lord. We're, we're kind of left with some blanks to fill in there as far as Abraham's understanding. But notice the second part of verse 2. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, O Lord. Now, there's two ways you could potentially translate what he said there from the Hebrew. It could be, O Lord, or it could be, my Lord, as in uh, a designation of respect and honor to a person who's in authority over you. But it's translated the best possible way here if in your Bible it says, O capital L, Lord, because this name is actually a designation for God himself, and it's only used in reference to God, and that lets you know Abraham somehow knew that this was the Lord. I want you to be able to stop here for just a moment, and in your own heart, believe that this was the Lord. The scriptures say so. Abraham recognized it. This is the word of God. And the reason why I'm making a big deal of that is this. We, uh, we seek to be, when I say we, I mean all of us together, we seek to be honest Christians. We want to be honest. So where we struggle, where there's doubt, where there's fear, where there's insecurity, we want to go ahead and just recognize that, call it what it is, and then ask the Lord to deal with us in reality. Don't you want that? Rather than to just pretend that you don't struggle with this or doubt that or feel insecure in any way uh, and just kind of save face as a Christian, we want to be an honest family pursuing truth in the inward parts. So when we come to a text like this that, let's be real, seems, maybe like more than some other texts in the scripture, seems like a story, right? Now here's Abraham sitting here at the door of his tent. He lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, three men are standing in front of him. They're standing in front of him. How can you suddenly be standing in front of somebody when they were just sitting at the door of their tent? And then somehow when he saw that they were there, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, recognizing that this was an appearance of creator God of the universe, not some fable, not some figment of imagination, not a fairy tale, not some mythical creature, but the actual God who created all things is now standing in front of Abraham, the God that you know the God that you pray to, the God that you're here this morning to seek is standing here in this text. And I'm making a big deal of this because I know our hearts can wander to a place of treating this like a fable, like there's some moral lesson we need to learn, but you don't take it literally seriously as if these things actually happened. But we have to be in this text as a historical text, a record of something that happened. I'm making a big deal of that because it's a big deal. And if we don't get that in place where we believe that this is telling the truth about God, then the rest of the text and the rest of our time together will be 
wasted. He said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. Now again, what an odd thing. What an odd interaction that God would come and visit a person and that this person's reaction to being visited by God would be, why don't you hang out and I'll make lunch? Isn't that an odd reaction to seeing God before you? Here's what I think is happening. Keep in mind that Abraham doesn't know everything about God that we have the privilege of knowing. We have thousands of years of history and an entire bound book of pages revealing the truth, the character, the nature of God. But Abraham is still in the process of getting to know this God who's called him. He knows he's holy. He bowed himself to the earth. He knows he's worth knowing. He ran from his tent door to meet him. He knows that he wants to be in his presence. He asked him to stay. But the Lord appeared to him as a person. So the best Abraham knew to do was to try to make him feel welcomed. He wanted to invite him and have him stay. So he says, let me just make a little food. Let me bring a little water. You notice, it's actually kind of funny here. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that, pass on. Doesn't that, that gives you the sense that, look, let me just bring a couple snacks, hang out for a minute, rest yourselves, and then you'll keep moving, right? Now look what happens. In Abraham's zeal, so they said, do as you have said. Verse 6, and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. That's like almost two gallons of flour. Make a bunch of cakes. Like, you just said you were going to, it's the Lord makes cakes. <laughs> the Lord's going to visit us? We don't even have cake? Verse 7, and Abraham ran to the... Now, keep in mind, this is a 99-year-old man. And in a patriarchal society, a 99-year-old man with great wealth and many servants and herds does not run anywhere. I mean that historically. He doesn't run anywhere for anybody. He ran out to meet them. He runs into Sarah, makes some cakes. Then Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf, tender and good, gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate like a servant. You notice he recognizes the importance of what's happening and who it is that he is interacting with here. He's running all over the place frantically, not just a little bit of water for their feet and a morsel of bread and some shade. He's going all out preparing a feast for them. This would have taken Hours. You understand they're talking about slaughtering a cow, preparing it, cooking it, bringing it in, like in whatever way you prepare a meal for royalty. That's what he's doing here. I also just want to make a note. It says he sat, uh, they, he stood by them under the tree while they ate. The Lord came and ate a baby cow. 
and I'm just going to let that sit with you. A tender cow, a cow that was good, and he ate it with cheese and then washed down a piece of cake with a glass of milk. And I'm just saying, that's good. The Lord did that. So don't try to make me feel bad when I want to do that. That's just a side note. That's not even part of the sermon. That's just a side note. When I want meat and cheese and cake and milk, just let me have it. Verse 9. Now here's where it gets like super, super real. They said to him, that is the Lord and his two companions, we don't get a ton of, ex- of description here. We don't get a ton of exposition from the New Testament describing other than the fact that it actually was the Lord. Maybe these are angels. I don't know. Some kind of Trinitarian experience that Abraham had. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah, so this is a reiteration of the promise. This is not new information, except that now the timing has entered into the equation. Up until now, the Lord has said, I will make you a great nation. I will give you a son. I'll even tell you what to name him. And it's going to be through your wife, Sarah. No new information there. But for him to come back about this time next year, and it's done, new information. It's going to happen now. It's imminent I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So there's the Lord sitting there under the tree. There's Abraham standing like a servant, listening while they eat. Now they begin to speak to him. And behind Abraham is the tent, presumably with the door closed, the curtain of the the tent closed. And Sarah is sitting there, eavesdropping on the conversation between her husband and the Lord and these two others. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So any kind of talk about having a child up to this point was unlikely, very unlikely the older she gets. At this point, it's naturally just impossible. So what Sarah is hearing inside of the tent is something that is just not possible. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself. She didn't laugh to the Lord or to Abraham, but quietly in the tent, she laughed to herself and she said, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, she's speaking about Abraham there, you notice lowercase l, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Shall I have the joy of bearing children? After I'm worn out and old. Again, we want to be honest when we come to the scriptures because the scriptures are so honest with us. Are we going to throw stones at her right now? Or are we just going to identify? Are we going to relate to her? Is it not entirely understandable? Is it, is it not appropriate to be sympathetic? You think of your life. 
You think of where you've been, the kinds of things you've been through, maybe some of the things you've witnessed the Lord do in your life, and you think, have I ever been in a spot where I knew that something was impossible, and then the Lord did it? Now, I, I so hope you've had that experience, but maybe up to this point, you haven't. Maybe the thing that you think is impossible has still not come to pass. That doesn't make it any less possible that God could do it. But it helps you identify with her. She's struggling here to the point of considering it a ridiculous notion, something to laugh at. Now that I'm worn out and my husband is as good as dead, am I going to have children? She's asking rhetorically, She knows that the answer is no, you will not have this pleasure. But then the Lord speaks. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? She had her rhetorical question she knew the answer to. Now the Lord is offering a rhetorical question he knows the answer to. Will I, will I have this pleasure? Is anything too hard for me? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. He's speaking to Abraham, but isn't he speaking to Sarah inside the tent? Because look here in verse 15, but Sarah denied it. It's like you can hear her through the tent. I did not laugh. (laughs) For she was afraid, yes, because she had laughed at the notion that the Lord could do what he said he was going to do. He said, one of the most terrifying moments, I think, in human history, no, but you did laugh. And then it's just quiet from there. (laughs) Then the men set out from there. You see verse 16, we're not going to do it right now, but you see, then they set out. Oh, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) I mean, wait, come back. I just wanted to explain. It's too late. Okay, so look. Shall I indeed bear a child? Shall this impossible thing happen? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I know that we are, I know that we're in Genesis here. I know this was thousands of years ago. I know that you maybe have heard about this passage, but not like studied it a lot. I know that it feels maybe very distant. Uh, and ancient to you and, and maybe not real relatable because the Lord has not appeared to you. You've never made lunch for him. He's never spoken out loud to you. None of these kinds of things. So this experience just seems so otherworldly and, and it seems like it's about promises to other people about big stuff that I just, man, I'm, what am I? But this question right here, this rhetorical question that the Lord asks, this is the hinge pin of the entire experience that they just had with him. 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is, I'm going to say it again. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, the Lord knows the answer to that question. The question for us is, do we know the answer to that question? And not just like, was it going to be possible? Well, the Lord said he was going to do it. So, I mean, surely he was going to do it. This question can be asked at any point about anything by anybody. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Apply that to whatever you want to. You can't do this with all the scriptures, okay? Every scripture isn't about everything. But this concept that the Lord just introduced to Abraham and Sarah about his word, his promise, and his power, this truth transcends all of human experience. Everything that we think we could possibly know, this question right here could be asked, and we know the answer. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is always, 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 perpetually, eternally, no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. There are things the Lord will not do. Amen? He will not sin. He will not violate his own will. He will not violate his own character. He will not not do something he said he would do. There are things the Lord will not do, but there, is there anything that the Lord can't do? Is anything too difficult for him? That word difficult right there actually, again, in the Hebrew could be translated a couple of different ways and both are fine. Both, both get at the same point. Here's the other way you could translate the word difficult. Wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for me to do? Is there anything you could imagine? Anything that would cause you to, to revel in me and enjoy me and be in awe of me? Is there anything I couldn't do to capture your attention and set you in wonder of myself? No, there isn't anything too hard, too wonderful for the Lord to do. Now at this point in the text, I, I know because I know myself and I know that you and I are a lot alike because we're just people who need a lot of grace and forgiveness we want the Lord, but we keep finding it so difficult to stay committed to Him. So I, I, I imagine that your mind is going in a million different places, thinking about all the things you wish could have happened, you wish would happen, things you've hoped for, asked God for, and that have seemed up until this point maybe impossible, and truly seem impossible. And maybe not just even seem impossible, but in a natural sense, you've been told that's not possible. And yet there's a yearning in your heart for it, a desire for it that you've been pleading with God, seeking him about, waiting on him. Maybe like Abraham and Sarah, you've been feeling confident that the Lord has said this, and yet in your waiting, you've faltered and sinned and lost faith over the years. I don't know what all those things are. And I'm not going to try to sit here in a room with all these people and somehow like speak some prophetic vision into each one of your lives or something like that. That's just not, that's not what I think the Lord would have us do here. I, this is what I think. I think there are some very common things that we all, all of us, by nature of our limitation as human beings, because we're just not God, 
And because God has just not finished the work that he's doing inside of us, like Philippians 1 says, he'll be faithful to complete the work he began in us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the day of Jesus. So we're just not finished products yet. So just by nature of the fact that we're still on a journey, there are some things that we just all struggle with and have this feeling either consciously or subconsciously in our hearts that those things just feel too difficult. And and we have seasons where we feel strong in our trust in the Lord that he'll do what he said, and then we have seasons where we feel like we're in some kind of dark valley and the Lord is far away, and, and maybe this is just it for me. Maybe I was misled or misguided. Maybe I didn't understand. And we give up on the idea that this thing could happen. I would like to point out one of those things that we all tend to struggle with. And and I'm speaking now as someone who's grown up in this culture. When I say this culture, I, I mean a couple of different things, a couple of layers. I mean American culture, Southern culture, and and even Southern American religious culture, Christian culture in the American South, there are things that we've been told, and yet, because of the world we live in, culture we live in, there are certain things that have been, we've been told are good, are attractive, are necessary for life, and yet they seem far off. And, and one of those things is this, that the Lord is and will be always enough for us. That's a hard thing to swallow for our culture. Do we not live in a culture where we never have enough? We never have enough. Uh, It's almost as if in our culture to be satisfied, to be content is a blemish on your character. What, that's enough for you? What you've gained so far is enough? You're just going to plateau here? You're not going to keep pressing, keep keep striving, keep seeking for more, for more? Even if you have to step over other people and hurt them and wound them? Well, hey, get out of my way then. In our culture, it is not, uh, it is not a highly valued attribute of character to be content and to be satisfied that the Lord repeatedly in the scripture says, he is all satisfying. He's enough for us. But do we live every day believing that he's enough for us? Do we think that for us to be satisfied, I don't, I don't just mean settle, like you're, you're willing to settle for something, but that we could be satisfied like some very rich, flavorful, fulfilling thing has been given to us and that all of our needs in that thing are met. Satisfied. Is it possible for us to live our lives believing that we are satisfied? that we have enough, that there's nothing else we need that hasn't already been offered to us, that that one thing is the Lord 
himself. The Lord himself. He has given himself to us in Christ. So then, this question, this question is haunting. It is haunting to imagine that in my daily life, in all of my striving, in all of my yearning and asking, in all of my wanting and feeling voids and emptiness and lack of peace and lack of satisfaction, that the Lord would say to me, in my discontentment, even though I have Him, and I'm asking the all-satisfying one, would you please satisfy me with this thing, with this person, with this, with this mission, with this thing that I want and I yearn for and I ask you for, would you please satisfy me? And he is the one who satisfies. He says, do you think it is too difficult for me to be all-satisfying to you? Do we believe that we cannot be entirely satisfied with the Lord? Do we not believe that if we were to have all of Him, it would be entirely enough for us? And do we not believe that the Lord has already done it? That if we have placed our faith in Christ, then we have been saved from a life of sin, from the wrath of God, and been reconciled to this God who's granted to us even his own spirit to live inside of us, to satisfy us, teach us, lead us, shape us. We've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Because we have God himself. I want to ask you to turn to the book of Romans. Written by Paul. And to chapter 8. So if you're kind of new to the Bible, you're going to go forward towards the end and about two-thirds of the way or so, you're going to find the New Testament. You're going to find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then a book called Acts. And then you're going to find Romans. And in chapter 8, uh, I want to do something that we don't do a ton of. I wish we did more of. But I'm just going to read for a few minutes. Just read the word of God to you and over you. And, and I, would, I, would, I think it would be good and appropriate this morning. I, I think it would please the Lord. If we were to sit under this word that you're about to hear read, which is the word of God, and, and do not forget this question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Have you put your faith in Christ and yet still live like a condemned person? Under some yoke, some burden of guilt? There is therefore 
now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son and the likeness of sinful flesh. And for our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit For those who live according to the flesh have set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who rose Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory, the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealings of the Son of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, we know, we know, we know that all things work together for good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Shall any of these things separate us from Christ? Is anything too difficult for God? As it is written of the apostles, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, all these sufferings, all this slaughtering, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, saints, nor things present, nor things to come, brothers and sisters, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, fill in the blank with your greatest fear, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is anything too difficult for God? This is true. This is his will for you. This is his word to you, to save you, to keep you, to secure your hope, to change you, 
to grow you, sanctify you, and bring you to a place finally at a day when Christ returns, when your rotten dead body will be raised from the grave, reunited with Christ, and to live in eternity in perfection with not a tear, not an unfulfilled hope, not a lack in your being, all fulfilling God with you forever to satisfy your soul for eternity. Is anything too difficult for God? Is this too difficult for God? We dare not say yes. We dare not laugh at the prospect of it. He will do these things. They're as good as done. So then one more question. What are we afraid of? What do we still fear is too difficult for him? The answer is nothing. So let's plead with the Lord that he would convince our hearts that it's true. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.